0: All right, well, we are continuing in the book of Ephesians, continuing in chapter 2, and so I will begin by reading chapter, or chapter 2, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by the hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Thank you that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Okay, well, these first two chapters of Ephesians, you recall... Uh, have the theme of in Christ, in Christ, in him, in whom, in the beloved. We find that repeated again and again, that it's the great salvation that God has provided in Christ. That's what uh, the Apostle, through the Holy Spirit, is talking about in these first two chapters. And there are a lot of other things that he doesn't go into. He doesn't go into, he doesn't discuss in these chapters, How we come to be in Christ, how we abide in Christ, uh, what we should do in Christ, for the most part. These things may be touched on tangentially, but the discussion isn't primarily about those things. It's about the great salvation that is in Christ, and what an amazing, marvelous, wonderful, great, surpassing thing this is. Hupabalon, right? Surpassing. Um, It is a great thing, and that uh, is uh the motivational thing you know why should we be in christ why should we seek salvation why should we uh, repent of our sin why sh- and so on well look at this great salvation that god has provided in christ what a great thing it is and he's done it for his glory as is fitting and proper and best for us so now let's go into the verse by verse discussion here verses 11 through 22 so it begins by whoops what i wanted there just a minute ah there we go 11 okay so uh, continuing to discuss uh, what christ has done for us what god has done for us for his glory in christ he says therefore remember that you once gentiles in the flesh so uh, the uh, salvation in christ is all the more amazing when viewed in contrast with our previous state and, you know, elsewhere in Philippians, Paul says, forgetting those things that are behind. And we don't want to dwell in the past. That's easy to do, especially, I guess, when you get old, because you have so much of it. And uh, you tend to think of your past a lot. And, uh, and to sort of let past defeats drag you down and to feel like, well, I'm no good because back in 74 I did such and such or back in 81 I did so and so but uh, no uh, those things are behind us and so uh, forgetting those things is you're behind but remembering only in this in general terms that we were once without hope and without God in the world that we we where we came from was a position of hopelessness and a position of uh, not having anything to offer God we didn't negotiate anything with God we didn't negotiate any kind of deal you know I've got these very good uh, uh, things to offer you God I I had nothing to offer God at all and so remembering where we came from makes the the greatness of our salvation all the greater they were once Gentiles in the flesh uh, who were called uncircumcised by what is called circumcision made in the flesh by hands in other words they were not Jews And uh, the members of the church there at Ephesus, uh, uh, Paul always went and preached in the synagogue first, but usually didn't get much of a reception there, sometimes some, and sometimes none. And uh, there may have, I suppose, been some Jewish believers at Ephesus, but they were overwhelmingly Gentiles. And uh, so he says, you know, you were once Gentiles, and uh, as man counts it, you know, as far as these outward observances as far as the outward forms, the ceremonial law and the requirements of the ceremonial law were concerned, you were Gentiles and not Jews. That's how man count things, but, counts things, but God doesn't necessarily always count them the same way. So verse 12, some clicks do it, some clicks don't. There we go. That at that time you were without Christ. So Again, the theme of these two chapters being in Christ, well, at that time, you were without Christ, not in Christ, you didn't have Christ, and you were not in Christ. He says, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's one of those verses that stands out in my mind when I think of verses that talk about our, our before Christ state, our, what we were without Christ, and having no hope, and without God in the world. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. So aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, the word there uh, is counted as foreigners by God's people, and really is, as resident, like a resident alien. You, were, you might have been, even if you lived around them, you weren't a citizen, I and mean, you didn't have citizens' rights, and you didn't have citizen status, not any longer. Strangers from the covenants of promise. Outside of God's Old Testament promises, God had made all sorts of promises in the Old Testament. Well, Gentiles, uh, unbelieving Gentiles, they're not for you. Sorry, uh, you know, as unbelievers, out without Christ, uh, they were outside of those covenants and they were outside of those promises. Sometimes people take some of the Old Testament promises to Israel and, and perhaps may universalize them a little more than is desired. And, I, and then I think sometimes people get after their fellow believers too much for taking things out of context. You know, there's that famous verse that everybody likes to quote, I know the, the plans that I have for you, and so forth, which was a statement made in the first instance directly to Israel about after I bring you into captivity under the Babylonians for all these years, then I'm going to bring you out. I have these plans for you that are good. And so, right, and that was to Israel. However, I like to say that's, that's the kind of God we have, and that's the kind of way he deals with his people. And I think I've told you the story about my friend Phil and, and, and my friend Patrick and how Patrick and I were talking. We, we just, uh, my happenstance happened to, uh, at, at a church, I uh, ran into Phil's fiance's sister at, at a religious meeting. She was talking to us afterwards. She said, well, you know, you guys know Phil. Well, tell me some good Phil stories, you know, some good stories about Phil. And Phil was the kind of guy, there just weren't any stories about him, and I guess that said something about him. But the point is, you know, she wants to know what kind of guy her sister met at college and is, is going to marry. I think her sister did well, but... Uh, you know, and you you find out what kind of person someone is by hearing the stories about them, and, and uh, oh, this is how he has done in different situations, and our God has made good promises to His people. And even if some of the promises in the Old Testament were specifically to the nation of Israel, specifically regarding specific situations that they, he was going to bring them into and bring them through and bring them out of, he's still the kind of God who makes and keeps promises to his people and brings them out of situations that he brings them through. But once upon a time, the, these, uh, Gentile, these Gentiles in Ephesus and these Gentiles here in Irving, Texas today, once upon a time, were strangers from the covenants of promise, and uh, you know aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel. You know when God's people met together, we didn't belong among them. You've probably been places where you you didn't belong. Uh, maybe maybe you're just blessed and fortunate. You're one of those people that you always feel like you belong any place you go. Some kind of super extrovert. Now, I'm kind of a super introvert, and I so I I, uh, I know some people I think pastor uh contends with me for you know the uh the, the prize of being the, the biggest introvert in the church, but uh you know I tend to feel like I don't belong in even places where I do like I don't belong here, I'm an imposter, I, I don't really belong here, and uh but you know that feeling that you get, and if you're maybe if you're an introvert, maybe even if you're an extrovert, you've had it in some places like was I supposed to be in this meeting? And this is the Gentiles among, you know, among God's people. They get among the Jews. Of course, the way the Jews did business, they'd let you know real quick you didn't belong here. So all of that was true of them. They were God's promises, not for you guys. Uh, Christ, you don't have any interest in Christ once upon a time. Don't have any, don't have any claim on him. Uh, aliens from the Commonwealth, Israel, strangers to the covenants without hope, so they had, um, uh, they had no uh, basis for expecting good things in the future, no reason to think anything good might happen to them in the future, and they knew it. You know, in the Greek world, uh, the, there was an idea of life after death, but it wasn't a good idea. It wasn't our idea exactly of hell, of eternal conscious torment and fires that aren't quenched. Not like that. Uh, So it wasn't biblical. But it was a view of hell that saw, or or, the life after death, Hades, the abode of the dead, where it was a dark and shadowy existence. It was gloomy. It was not hopeful. It was not happy. The people that were there. We're not having a good time. The Greeks would never say of someone who died, oh, he's in a better place now. That's a strictly Christian idea, often misapplied in our modern world. We say everybody's in a better place. I'm afraid most of them are not. But um, uh, the Greeks had this idea, no, it's a worse place. It's a bad existence. It's dark. It's gloomy. It's unpleasant. It's not hopeful at all. So much so that when... The Hellenistic, uh, speaking of the era in which he lived, philosopher uh, Epicurus wanted to come up with a, a philosophy of um, don't worry, be happy. Uh, just, you know, how to have happiness in life because that's the only thing that counts. By the way, Epicurus sounds extremely modern. He sounds like just just uh, yesterday's male um, totally. In fact, I was just uh, reading a book about a guy hiking the Appalachian Trail. And he, um, the author of the book, uh, sort of ventured into a flight of philosophy about the meaning of life and what we should do in life. And he sounded like Epicurus. But now the thing is just to free the body from fear and the mind, or excuse me, free the body from pain and the mind from fear and just be happy. Because that's all there was in life. And why can you be happy? Because after death, there's nothing. So we don't have to worry about death because um, we don't exist now in the realm of the dead. And, and when we're dead, we won't exist. That's it. You're not going to go and dwell in Hades in this gloomy abode of the dead where everything's gloomy and sad. No, you're just going to cease to exist. And Epicurus is picking up on the writings of another Hellenistic philosopher, a guy named um, Goodness gracious. I think Democritus, who said everything is just, uh, it's all particles. That's nothing, the world is nothing but particles. Why doesn't he sound modern, too? He said everything, everything, everything is made up of little particles that are so small they cannot be split. So he called them unsplittables, and, which is atom. You can't split them. And, uh, well, it turned out you can, although uh, you get a bang out of it if you do. But, um, just anyway, it's all materialism. And when you die, you die like a dog dies, and you go out of existence. And that was the most hopeful thing they could come up with. Hey, says Epicurus, be happy. There's hope. After you die, you totally go out of existence, and you never know, think, or feel anything ever again. Now, maybe it's just me, but I don't think that's very hopeful. I think that's a dreadful thought. I think that's horrifying, and I did. I remember as a as a little boy. I mean, young. I mean, preschool. The idea that if you might die, and, and, and if the, you, and of course I knew that that wasn't the case because I had been taught. I don't remember when I was first taught where, what would happen to unbelievers when they died, and what would happen to believers when they die. And I knew about that, but I knew also that many of my fellow human beings believed that when you died, it was just o- nothing over end of existence. And I thought that was a terrifying idea. Horrible. That's what they've got for hope. That's what the unbelievers then, you know, these Ephesian Gentiles before Christ and our fellow human beings today, most of them, I guess most of them, at least they say they do, believe. It's just they go out of existence and that's it. Hmm. Wow, if that's all they've got for hope. And that's without hope, without, without God in the world, right. with no knowledge of the one true God who made the world, so that the folks in Athens put up an altar to the unknown God because it just seemed obvious to them there must be some other God. I don't think we've got them all here. We've got altars to all kinds of gods, but there must be one we don't know because none of these gods account for. I don't know if they quite figured it out the way they should, according to Romans 1, but uh, there must be an infinite creator. Now, by the way, they had got that far. Plato came up with that, the Greek philosopher Plato. He said, well, there must be, um, I guess Plato would be considered a Hellenistic philosopher also, but eh, eh, nah, nah. I don't know. Anyway, Greek or Hellenistic. Anyway, Plato um, said, yeah, there's an infinite, there's a sort of an infinite God, the unmoved mover, because there has to be. I mean, it's sort of a philosophical necessity. He was right that far. Yes, there's a philosophical necessity that there be an infinite God. But Plato's infinite God was not personal. He, was not, he did not have a personality. He was not a person. He was just a force sort of a force. And insofar as he would do anything that a person would do, he would do, because Plato, you know, Plato's mind, he would do the best thing that a person could do. Well, what's that? Contemplation, says Plato. What would he contemplate? He would contemplate the best thing that you could possibly contemplate. What would that be? Well, that would have to be himself. So there was this impersonal, infinite God who did nothing ever but contemplate himself? Well, you know, Plato made some progress, so much so that that some Christians over the ages, including the Middle Ages, tried to uh, tried to somehow uh, read Plato into the faith. Sorry, no, doesn't get there. That that doesn't get it. That's not the God that we, we know. Our God certainly is infinite, but uh, and He's the best. Possible uh, being, he's perfect, but um, no, he's not lost in continual contemplation of himself. He thinks about us. That's amazing. Well, they were without hope and they were without this God, the God who made the world, the one infinite God, who alone could account for the existence of the world and their existence as persons. They didn't know that God and they knew it. They were without hope refuge or hope in a world cursed by sin that's where they used to be that's what we might what we remember yeah we can forget those things which are behind us to our past failures and sins Uh, only remember that we had plenty of them and uh, sometimes we we can't forget them until maybe we make them right with uh with the humans that we need to make them right with but that we had uh, plenty of sins and that we were without hope and without god in the world but God. But now in Christ Jesus, another one of those dramatic changes of direction. This is where you were, but this is where you are. And what a dramatic contrast it is. But now, you once were without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now, another dramatic reversal again in Christ Jesus, the theme of chapters 1 and 2. Again, all through chapter 1, all through chapter 2, in Christ Jesus, the things that, we, that are, we enjoy, the things that we have in him are wonderful and beyond ability to describe. Yes, indeed. In Christ, those who once had been far from God, far from God's word, they didn't have, remember what, in Romans says, what advantage then hath the Jew? Much in every way, chiefly that to them were committed the oracles of God, the Jews had the Word of God, and the Gentiles didn't. they were far off, far from God, far from his word, far from his covenant well that's covenants not for you. Oh, there were covenants that we know would apply to more than Jews that in your descendants, God said to Abram, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, so it was for the whole world and the seed of the woman, and that's all of us. So the promises were there, but they were far off from them. Uh, and they were far from God's people. Now they had been brought near to all of those by the blood of Christ, by Christ's suffering and death on the cross. Not by his blood while it was still coursing through his veins, uh, but by the fact that he shed his blood by suffering for us and taking upon us All the guilt of our sin, when he had no guilt of his own, by that we are brought nigh, and they were brought nigh too. For he himself, verse 14, is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, he himself. This emphasizes the the word order in the Greek, emphasizes that it is he and no other. He and he alone, Christ himself, is our peace. He does not merely make peace or bring peace. He is peace by who he is and what he did. That he is the son of God and the son of man, that he tasted death for all men, that and thus he makes peace between us and God and between us and our fellow man, who, especially those who are in Christ also. And that means also, and specifically in this verse he's talking about, between Jews and Gentiles. Now, that may not strike us as forcefully as it would have struck them and struck many people at many times because Many times through history, Jews and Gentiles have not gotten along particularly well. It's been said that no absolute ruler, as Francis Schaeffer said, that no absolute ruler, no totalitarian state will tolerate people who have another absolute by which to judge that ruler or that state and its actions. And the Jews had it. And so that tended to make them rather obnoxious to rulers who wanted to have all power. A ruler that wants to be God is not going to appreciate people who remind him that that position is already filled and that they're not accepting his claims to that. And so that made the Jews unpopular. But truth to tell, sometimes the Jews could make themselves unpopular by arrogant attitudes towards the Gentiles and by the kind of thing that we see in the Judaizers and that we bump into, sometimes we see it popping up a little bit in the book of Acts, where um, some of the Jews are saying to Peter, how could you go in and, and actually preach to Gentiles? Oh, Gentiles, We don't want Gentiles to be saved. Um, and that you get that attitude from some of them sometimes. and Especially, you know, Paul would go to the synagogue, and he'd tell them about salvation through Christ. And some were like, yeah, and some were like, eh, nah, nah, uh-uh. But they usually didn't start beating Paul up until Paul went and started preaching to the Gentiles and they could be saved, they could be reconciled to God, they could be counted among God's people without coming under the ceremonial law. Oh boy, then watch out. And the Jews you know, take unto themselves certain lewd fellows of the base or sort and, uh, and you know, then there's going to be trouble because we sure don't want those Gentiles to get in. And there had been a lot of enmity between them. So Paul says, he is our peace who has made both one. And that's where one of the ways, and there's a number of places it comes up in this verse, the next, and maybe the one after, that he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, because both. So we've got two groups being made one. And uh, this, uh, of Jews and Gentiles, says, you you were far from God's people. Now both are going to be made one. It's broken down the middle wall of separation, And the commentators who understand these things tell me that the middle wall of separation, the construction there, uh, and and the first phrase of verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, suggests that the middle wall of separation was composed of or was made of the enmity, the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. So this hostility that was there, that the two groups hated each other and despised each other, uh, he says he has broken down that wall of separation, that there be no more enmity, hostility, hatred between Jews and Gentiles. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The ceremonial law, the all these uh, things from circumcision to uh, various other things that the Jews had to do as matters of ceremony, for example, And I know it gets a little tricky when you start coming to uh, specifics sometimes. Specifically, this is ceremonial, and specifically, this is not ceremonial, and you get into trouble. And I know sometimes there's the, what one of my favorite Bible teachers calls the UPSA principle, UPSA, Universal Principle Specific Application. So uh, some of the, um, for example, one example that he gave of that is like uh, not, plowing with an ox and an ass or an ox and a donkey yoked together because they pull at different speeds and um, he said that this it would be cruel to them because uh, they pull at different speeds the yoke would get torqued and it would be hurting their necks and they would be suffering so the specific application is not to be gratuitously cruel to to living beings to, to beasts animals but um Anyway, it can be tricky, I know, saying, well, this is ceremonial law, and this has been fulfilled in Christ, and other things aren't, and it's tricky, and we want to have charity there and be careful about that. But there are things that we have been given to understand specifically, for example, circumcision, uh, made abundantly clear that is not a matter of of, uh, law or pleasing God anymore, that is no longer uh, required. Another thing is uh, the dietary restrictions on clean and unclean animals. You know, The Jews could only eat animals that had a cloven hoof and that chewed their cud. So cows were okay because so they had a cloven hoof and they chewed their cud. Rabbits chewed their cub- cud, but they didn't have cloven hooves, so rabbits are right out. You can't eat a rabbit. Um, let's see what. Uh, can, can you eat a camel? Can you eat a camel? I'd rather not. I believe... I can't even remember what a camel's hooves looked like. Oh, it doesn't matter. But the point is, um, that's out. Remember that that was uh, shown to Peter when he was on the roof of the house of Simon, the tanner there in Joppa. And the sheet was let down from heaven three times with clean and unclean beasts in it. And uh, apparently, maybe just all... Unclean beast, because Peter, if there had been a clean beast in there, I presume Peter would have got up, you know, in his dream and and uh, would have eaten, killed, and eaten as ordered. But there must have been no clean beast in there, and Peter says, "Well, I've never eaten an unclean beast." And and the voice from heaven said, well, "What God has cleansed, don't call, con- uh, don't call unclean." So uh, that is a matter of ceremonial law that has been removed. And by the way, thus when people today, for example, there are people who say, "Well," um, but, you know, if, if you eat shellfish, you can't condemn homosexual behavior because uh, the Old Testament law condemns shellfish. I mean, that's a dietary restriction specifically lifted in the New Testament. The, uh, the prohibition on homosexual behavior has not by any means been lifted. Rather, it's been reiterated in the New Testament. So so much for that. But anyway, um, he has, Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law on our behalf. And uh, that is not binding or required of us anymore. And thus he has dissolved any substantive difference between Jew and Gentile. In other words, there's no point anymore in being a Jew religiously. Now, you might be a Jew ethnically. That's fine. That's great. Um, nothing wrong with that at all. That's ethnicity. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about being a Jew in religious observance, and there's no longer any point in being that because Christ has fulfilled all the aspects of the law that dealt with Jewishness. And now, to be part of God's people, all you need to do is be in Christ. So, He has abolished and fulfilled the ceremonial law. In doing this, Christ made both Jew and Gentile into one new kind of man. Uh, Seems like I have to aim it just right. Whoops. Oh, and I also pushed the right button. Yes, there we go. Um, Verse 16, And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So again, talking about uh, both Jews and Gentiles, uh, to be brought together into one body, the church, through here, the cross. Uh, this is, uh, I think, that they call it synecdoche, where you put apart for the whole uh, Christ's blood, in the previous verses, representing all of uh, all of Christ's suffering for us, all that Christ did for us in his suffering on the cross. Here, the cross, again, I think a different synecdoche, I think that would be called, uh, where all that Christ, all Christ's suffering for us on the cross, Christ's sacrifice for us, bearing all our sins in his own body on the cross, expressed hereby through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, the hostility, the separation between Jew and Gentile. There we go. You know, when I press the right button, it really works really well. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. He came and preached peace. This is a little difficult, but uh, the commentator said, and it made sense to me, so I'm going to go with it, uh, he did this by his Holy Spirit and by the apostles, that is, to those um, both. In other words, Christ was preached by the Apostle Paul in Ephesus, and preached by other apostles in various cities, and then preached by people like Apollos and Timothy, who were not apostles but operated under the auspices of apostles, at least That's how I would class them. Um, And so, and thus, how can this be said to be Christ who is preaching this? Well, they're doing it by his power. Uh, He, uh, the Lord, was with them and uh, confirmed their word by signs following, right? We read in Mark, um, the last verses of the Gospel of Mark, where the Lord was with them and confirmed their word by signs following. So when Paul was in Ephesus and he did the signs of an apostle, that is, he, he, did sign gifts uh, that God gave specifically to show God's um, approval and endorsement of the word that Paul was bringing. Uh, That was Christ uh, preaching through the Apostle Paul. Okay. To those who were near and to those who were far off. The Gentiles were far off. They're far from God, far from the covenants and promises and the word of God and everything else. The Jews who were close... They had great advantages in every way, chiefly that to them were committed the oracles of God, but without Christ, they could not be saved. And this is important because, um, speaking now of religious Jewishness, okay, not speaking of ethnicity, but, well, I guess this statement would actually culture, no Jew is ever going to be saved by his Jewishness, Um, rejecting Christ. Now, before Christ, Um, those good observant Jews who were looking forward to the one who was promised, the one who would come, the promised seed of the woman, uh, i.e. Christ. They were saved through that. But since Christ has come, there's no salvation in any other. Uh, There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Both saved through Christ. Christ. Verse 19, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So much for this business of not belonging, uh, of, of being, uh, you know, I remember uh, um, there was, a, my dad had a cousin in Ohio. I think it was his cousin or second cousin. It was a pretty distant relationship was also his best friend. And they're really, really good friends. And um, they were, uh, the other guy's name was, was Stowe. His last name was Stowe. And, and the Stowe family, believe it or not, had their big annual reunion in Toccoa, Georgia. Well, later on, my dad and I both wound up teaching at a, at a Christian college in Toccoa, Georgia. And so um, we, um, we were invited to go to the Stowe family reunion. Because we were some kind of shirt-tail relations, like my dad's second cousin was a Stowe. <laughs> and it was pretty far, out. and so there we were at this, and they were super, super nice to us. They really made us feel included and, and all. But there was just this feeling that, um, well, I'm, I'm kind of a stowaway at the Stowe family reunion. Uh, and you again, you've probably been places where you felt like I'm not sure I really believe, uh, belong here well we are not that way among god's people anymore and maybe on the other hand on the good side you've had the experience of of visiting a church Uh, a few years ago my family and i were traveling and we uh uh, stopped and and we went to a church for sunday morning services. well we went to the sunday evening service too in uh saint charles missouri the suburbs of st louis and uh we felt like, by the, I think the end of the, by the time we left the Sunday morning service, we felt like we had known those people. I mean, you almost it's, it's almost shocking. You know, I didn't, I'd never seen any of those people before that morning. And by that evening, you know, we're attending evening service and, and the fellowship afterwards and just had a great time. And, and this, we're talking about a bunch of introverts where, I mean, the only person in my family who's not, more introverted than I am. Well, I don't know. Maybe some of them. Uh, Mary is less introverted than I am. And, uh, but Leah is more introverted than I am. And We're just a bunch of introverts, and, and, and yet you feel like, I just met a bunch of friends I never knew before. And that's what it means to be no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. No longer resident aliens. I was a resident alien for 10 months in Germany. It was okay, but you're not a German citizen. And, uh, you know, there are resident aliens in the United States here, but believers who who assemble with us are not resident aliens among us. They're fellow citizens, members of the household of God, just like us. And that means our Indian brethren and our Chinese brethren and our Mexican brethren and... Uh, any other brethren you can think of from every tribe, tongue, and nation of the earth, and they're just as much citizens of, of, of God's kingdom as we are. So, no longer strangers, but fellow citizens, citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. Our citizenship is in heaven. Praise the Lord for that. I like that. I mean, our, our U.S. citizenship is nice, and I'd rather be a citizen of the United States than any other country on earth, I guess. Although sometimes some things I see going on in our country are not exactly encouraging. But it's a whole lot better to be a citizen of heaven. That is better by far. With the saints and members of the household of God. With all those who by repentance and faith have been washed and made holy by the blood of Christ. Some who who uh, who have departed this life already and are with the Lord. And some who are still living on earth. And we're fellow citizens with them all. Praise the Lord. Whoops. Just patience there. Okay. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, the foundation of the apostles in the New Testament and the prophets in the Old Testament, the the foundation that they have laid, of which Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone, both for Jews and for Gentiles. Now, is this a contradiction of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2? 3. 3, sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where uh, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ. No, it's not. Uh, it's, uh, it's a metaphor. It's a word picture. So we, we should not demand Uh, stringent literalism here Uh, in other words he's saying Christ is like a foundation but he says Christ is the foundation yeah he is the foundation but Christ is to believers to the body of believers as a foundation is to a building believers are not literally stones the church is not a literal physical building and we are surely not piled up on top of Christ Uh, in a literal sense but he is absolutely our foundation in Christ as as the body of believers so in other words we're using a physical metaphor for a thing that's not physical we shouldn't expect uh, always every word picture the same for example Christ said I am the door I am the good shepherd I am the bread of life Um, all the different things that Christ said that are metaphors so um Christ, The chief cornerstone also is the most important part of the foundation. So if you pulled out the cornerstone, and this is the chief cornerstone, uh, the most important one, if you pulled that out somehow, it's plastered in, fortunately, but if you could somehow take a big earth move or a crunch, pull it out, the building's coming down. At least those two walls that meet there are coming down, and probably the rest of the building, too, uh, at least the way they used to build buildings back then, such that there was a cornerstone. So... um, Christ is the cornerstone, both for Jews and Greeks. Uh, Not because John Wesley's word is holy writ, it's not, but he said it really well. And so, um, well, I'll, I'll take his words. As the foundation sustains the building, so the word of God, declared by the apostles and prophets, sustains the faith of all believers. 21, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom, that is in Christ, there we are again, theme of chapters one and two, the whole building, so the universal church. And be careful when re- using that term because sometimes it's misused and it might be misunderstood. What I mean by a universal church and what is supposed to be meant by the universal church is not a local, not just a local body of believers. The believers who assemble at um, a little building uh, located in the middle of a big industrial park on Gateway Drive, in Irving, Texas, in the middle of a big metroplex, in the middle of an even bigger state, in the middle of an even bigger country, and so on. Not this little body of believers, but this little body of believers is part of it. But all those who, by grace through faith, are in Christ. So that, that church, all those who are in Christ. And the whole building, so the whole building uh, are, is um, in Christ. And it's being fitted together, meaning it is in the process of being built. It's a present participle in English. It's a present participle in Greek. It is being fitted together. Now, um, so Christ is building his church. He was building his church back in AD 56 or whenever it was that Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians. And he has continued building his church for all the years since and he's building his church right now and he will continue building his church until the trumpet sounds or i prefer until the trombone sounds Uh, and uh, christ returns and then christ's church will be complete and he will not be building it anymore is christ building his church today i know sometimes it can get a little discouraging and look around it doesn't look like being built. It looks sometimes like it's being dismantled. No, it's being built. God's building his church. There may be various ups and downs, and God knows all about that. God's going to do the sorting out of the weeps from the tares, and that doesn't mean to say that anybody who might be in one place and is presently in another place is a tear. I don't mean to say that at all. Um, only just that God's in charge of this process. God knows. God sorts And it's just because we can't for sure know the wheat from the tares uh, that that doesn't fall to our job to do that sorting. But uh, yes, with the kind of accuracy that it needs to be known, we can't. But um, God is building his church even today, even in the United States. People are being added. And uh, let's pray that the Lord that he would add more to his church. So the building is being fit together, and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The word for temple there is uh, naon, and naon is one of two words translated temple, uh, two Koine Greek words that get translated as temple. This is the temple proper, naon, exclusive of the outer courts. So when you hear that Jesus was teaching in the temple, that's the other word. For the outer courts, It's yaron, Yaron is the outer courts, the temple enclosure, the temple grounds. But Naon is the temple proper, the holy place and the holy of holies, into which the priest entered once a year. Uh, it was, that was the temple in which uh, Zacharias was ministering when uh, the angel Gabriel appeared to, Gabriel appeared to him and, and told him that his wife would bear a son. That temple, then Naon. And this is the Na'un, the temple proper, the place where God dwells. The place where God dwells. So God dwells in his church. Now, you know that God dwells in believers, and God dwells in the church. That is, in the assembly of believers. And um, now I know it was part of a discussion about church discipline. He said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. And... Um, Although that was for a specific purpose, I think the universal principle is when, when two or three do gather in Christ's name, I think he is in the midst of them. And you, you may believe there's, I think it's true, even when they're not gathered just for church discipline. He did make the promise, though, that when you gather for church discipline, I will be in the midst of you. I think he's in the midst of us the rest of the time, too. Now, again, what does it mean God is present? Because You know, the psalmist said, though I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you're with me. So God is present everywhere. But yet he's present in believers. The Holy Spirit indwells believers. And he's present when his people assemble in his name. Well, um, let's see, this is on the next slide. So let me just click to the next slide, which is good because it's time to anyway. All right, computer. There we go. 22. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You also? You, Gentile believers living in Ephesus, and the rest of you Gentile believers who are going to be reading this later in Texas or Missouri or someplace. Uh, All the rest of you, you, who are in Christ are being built. You as individual Christians are being incorporated. So it doesn't mean he's building you as Christians. Now, he is, that's another story, but that's not what he's talking about right here. He says that you as individual Christians are the components, the bricks, the building stones, timbers, or whatever, that are being built into this building, the church. Not literally this church building that we have, which you need to work on repairing uh, after the, the great storms, but here he's talking about the, the church. A dwelling place of God in the spirit. A place where God, and this is what it means for God to dwell and be present someplace. And again, I thought Wesley said it well, so I quoted him. Wow, can't improve on his words. Displays his presence and is worshiped and glorified. So God displays his presence among the assembly of believers. And that's why it's good for us if we can to assemble with believers. Is God present in us as individual believers? Yes. and if we were on a desert island and couldn't get off and we're stuck there or stuck someplace else or in a prison cell or something, God would manifest himself individually um, uh, you know to us as, as needed and indeed and, and in our homes and in our prayer closets and we pray and see God's face, God manifests himself but he gives us this opportunity to assemble with other believers and he puts his blessing on that and he manifests himself specially to us in that time. Saying, well, I didn't see any miracles and I didn't uh, see anybody running the backs of the pews. That's good, I'm glad. No, I don't think we ought to run the backs of the pews. Some churches, they do that, but I'm not for that. But um, no, I didn't see anything extraordinary. Well, uh, you're not going to see it. But you should feel it, hopefully, that God specially blesses us and ministers grace to our hearts. That is, he strengthens our hearts and he gives of his enabling power to us to strengthen us to be able to go victoriously through the next week. Uh, He does that to us among the assembly of believers. And it wouldn't have to be in a building, although it's nice to have a building. But if we had to assemble out in the woods someplace... Uh, Well, if the believers assembled together in the woods, God would minister his grace to us there. He would display his presence. He would be glorified in the assembly of believers, and he would be worshiped. Praise the Lord. That's all for today, so let's close with prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your blessings to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your church that you are building, and we pray that you would add to it more. We pray now that you bless the service to follow. Be with your servant as he brings us your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.